Our sermon passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through chapter 5, verse 10. So it's the last two verses of chapter 14 going into chapter 5. And you can find that in the Bibles provided on page 1003. One of the ways that Scripture helps us, and a big reason that we preach it week after week, is that God's Word shows us where we are most likely to fail, and God's Word points us to the remedy. Here in Hebrews, the author put his finger on a place last week where we are likely to fail by holding out for us the Israelites' negative example So he identified the Israelites' problem as they wandered through the wilderness with a whole set of terms. He said that they had the problem of hardness of heart. He said that they had fallen into the deceitfulness of sin. He described them as unbelieving and rebellious. And this was despite the fact that God had redeemed them from Egypt, and he had been with them through their journey and provided for them in the most miraculous ways, and yet Israel repeatedly distrusted him and tested him. Now, the author doesn't cite the Israelites as an example because it's kind of interesting biblical trivia, or we just want to pile on to those Old Testament people and make ourselves feel better. No, he uses Old Testament Israel as an example, as a a warning for his audience and for us. He identifies for us a danger we face, a danger of falling into the same kind of unbelief, a danger of believing sin's lies, a danger of rebellion. So we need to be watchful for our own hardness of heart. We need to be careful that we don't believe sin's lies. Now, again, this is not me calling you all sinners and calling myself a sinner. This is God telling us this is what our problem is. This is the great danger we face. These are the great dangers of the Christian life. Despite the fact that we know God's saving grace, we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness. We can demand, God, prove yourself to me again. We can want him to provide relief from whatever our immediate pressing problem is. We can trust in our own wisdom. And we can hold God to our standards instead of holding ourselves to his. Again, this is God's assessment of us. We face these dangers. That's why the author of Hebrews warned us last week, take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. These warnings are for us. I'm reminding you of this this morning to help us as we come to our passage this morning. God has warned us about the dangers of unbelief. He's assured us that we're going to be laid bare before God in judgment And he's told us there'll be no eternal rest for those who turn away from Christ. You might say that last week's passage is kind of cleaning the wound. It's that painful process where the wound has to be washed and maybe some some stingy antiseptic has to be applied to it. And now it's time for him to apply the healing medicine in our passage this morning. 
So what is this great medicine that the author has for us? Strange as it may seem to us, the author's medicine for us is to teach us more about Christ as our great high priest. The healing medicine that the author of Hebrews would point us to in the midst of our doubts and our temptations is doctrine, teaching about Christ. The next six chapters of Hebrews are largely given to this doctrinal exposition of Jesus, the high priest. The high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, as we will read later. And that that transition to that doctrinal exposition of Jesus, the high priest, begins with our passage today. Our passage is kind of like the bridge that connects the first four chapters to the next six chapters. Jesus is proclaimed to be the divine son of God, who is also the messianic son, the high priest who reigns and rules on God's throne. So this morning, we're going to divide up our time into two main headings. First, we're going to look at the doctrine. And the doctrine is that Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the great high priest. And then we're going to look at the author's application of that doctrine. Draw near to Jesus. Those are the two parts of the sermon. You could put it in a sentence. Jesus is the great high priest, so draw near to Jesus. That's the summary of the sermon this morning. So let's first look at this idea that Jesus is the great high priest. Hebrews 4.14 calls us once again to hold fast to Christ as our confession. I think this verse kind of serves as the heading, the title for the whole passage. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Notice that he calls Jesus here explicitly the Son of God, which picks up some of the big themes in the first four chapters. We've heard from the author that Jesus is the the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He is the eternal Son of God. And this this passage tells us that Jesus, the eternal God, has, has passed through the heavens, which reminds us that Jesus has been exalted After his suffering and death and resurrection, he has been exalted and he's sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So when we think of Jesus' death and his ascension, we shouldn't think of him perhaps exactly like we might think of a, a dear brother or sister who dies and goes to heaven. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as exalted over heaven. He reigns over the heavens and the earth as the one seated on God's throne. So Jesus has passed through the heavens. He's the Son of God, and we are to hold fast to him. He is our great high priest. The word great here isn't just a a thoughtless add-on, as if we're just kind of piling on cool words for Jesus. It's telling us something about the the quality of Jesus' priesthood. It is great. The author called our salvation great in chapter 2. He said we shouldn't neglect or drift away from such a great salvation as we have in Christ. He said that there's no hope for anyone who who neglects the great salvation that's revealed in Christ. Now he's starting to unfold the greatness of our high priest. Here in our passage, we're going to see two aspects of Jesus' greatness, the greatness of his high priesthood. First, the greatness of Christ's sympathy, and then the greatness 
of Christ's priestly calling. And remember, he's presenting us these truths, these truths about Christ's greatness to people who are tempted to turn away from Jesus. He's presenting these as uh, the remedy to our temptation. People who are suffering and tempted to doubt God need to hear this. We need to look to Jesus, our great high priest, great in sympathy and great in his calling. To see Jesus' greatness in his sympathy, I'm going to read verses 4, 15 to verse 5, I mean, chapter 5, verse 3. So picking up in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. I want you to note here how the author sets up a contrast for us between Jesus, the sinless high priest, and sinful high priests who are from among men, merely human, men in Aaron's line. He says that all high priests, both Jesus and these earthly high priests, are able to sympathize with the people that they help. Jesus is a high priest who sympathized, and so were the priests of Aaron's line. But the basis and the quality of their sympathy is different. So he says that the high priests like Aaron, they sympathized with sinners because they were beset with the same weakness. Note that the idea of weakness in chapter 5, verse 2, is tied to sin in verses 2 and 3. The author of Hebrews is not using weakness as simply to mean sort of physically weak or, or mortal, subject to death. In this context, weakness is talking about their moral weakness. It's a weakness that results from sin. So the Old Covenant priests could relate to the Israelites who came to make their sacrifices for sin because the Old Covenant priests were sinful themselves. They had to offer. They were obligated to offer sacrifices for their own sin. And this is not just talking about the really bad priests. right? This is talking about every high priest. They were all sinners. No matter how virtuous and good they were, no matter how well they executed the offices of the high priesthood, they still had to offer sacrifices. The Day of Atonement seems to be specifically oriented at addressing high priest's sin and the sins of all the people. We read here that they were beset by weakness. They were clothed in weakness. In addition to all their priestly garb, they are clothed in the weakness of sin. Now, it's worth noting here that the author doesn't draw attention to their weakness and their sympathy as as a way to say there's something wrong with their sympathy. But we also need to see that their sympathy is limited in its usefulness for sinners. The sympathy of these high priests in Aaron's line couldn't purify anyone from sin in a final or permanent way because they couldn't finally and permanently purify themselves from sin. 
So the best that their high priestly sympathy could do was to help lead sinners to the tabernacle sacrifices. One, one author or own commentator argues that this, uh, this phrase, deal gently, is a phrase that means kind of moderate their emotions. They weren't going to be too harsh with those who came to offer their sacrifices, again, because they themselves were sinners. So that's the, the high priest sympathy in Aaron's line, the high priests who were merely human. That's the kind of sympathy they had. But we're meant to see that Jesus' sympathy is greater. He sympathizes with our weakness as one who is tempted like us in every respect, yet without sin. So that's the first key about Jesus' sympathy. It's, it's sinless sympathy. He has none of our sin. He doesn't share in our sinful practices and inclinations. Now, I think most of us, when we read that, he, he was tempted like us in every respect. We, we want to kind of push back on that and say, really? Was he really tempted like us in every respect? And we have to admit the limits of our own understanding here. You know, our experience of sin and temptation is very much tied to our inward desires that, that give forth to sin. And Jesus didn't have sinful desires that spring out of his heart. But we also should remember how the Gospels portray Jesus' temptation in, in, in the, right after he's baptized, when he's driven into the wilderness. The temptations Jesus faced cover a, a broad range. So he was tempted by Satan uh, to give in to his bodily appetites when Satan tells him to turn the stones into a loaf of bread. He's tempted to be ruled by those physical, sensual appetites instead of trusting in God to provide. Then Christ is tempted to defy God's will, his, God's revealed will to him to, to die. He's tempted to defy that and instead to seek glory without suffering by bowing down to Satan and receiving all the kingdoms of the earth. And then he's tempted to put God to the test by throwing himself off of the temple and, and entrusting God's angels to catch him. So Jesus is tempted in here and he's presented with the greatest tests with the greatest possible stakes, would he trust God and thereby save his people from their sin and be glorified? Or would he abandon God? Would he turn away from God? Would he follow God's plan and be crucified for his people? Or would he sell his soul for the sake of immediate glorification? Would he demand that God prove himself before he trusted God and went through with God's plan? At each step of the way, Jesus proved to be ruled by faith and not unbelief. He lived on God's word. He said man's bread is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus was tempted like we are tempted, yet without sin. You can map on Jesus' temptation to what we read about the Israelites last week. He succeeded in every way that they failed. So Jesus is sinless, perfectly sinless. He's faced every temptation and he's passed through with flying colors. And yet, our sinless Savior sympathizes with our weakness. Remember how we noted that that word weakness is connected with our sinful state, our moral weakness. So we see here Jesus is not beset by this sinful weakness 
like the old covenant priests were. He had no sin of his own. He had no guilt. He wasn't inclined to sin. He was not able to sin. But he was tempted to the extreme and never sinned. His sinlessness was hard won through experiencing every temptation. And yet the sinless high priest sympathizes with us who have given in to sin. We're covered with it. And he sympathizes with us, with our weakness. He sympathizes with our weak, sin-stained state. Now, this, is, this should baffle us with wonder. How can it be? I mean, Jesus has every right to keep his distance, to, to hold his nose and stay away. But he sympathizes. And this sympathy is not like sending a greeting card sympathy. It's not some well wishes. He sympathizes to such a degree that he takes our weakness upon himself. Isaiah 53 that we read earlier said, Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The griefs and sorrows brought on by our sinful weakness. He was pierced for our transgression. So Jesus, the high priest, has no weakness of his own, but he took on the punishment that our sinful weakness deserves. That is Christ's great sympathy. Do you see the greatness of it? It is of a different quality and magnitude than the sympathy that one sinner can have for another. It's a sympathy that came down and took on human flesh so that he could bear our weakness for us. Jesus is the great high priest because of his great sympathy. It's greater sympathy than that of any merely human priest. Christ's sympathy in his sympathy died to save us. To, to those who are tempted to doubt God and to put him to the test, the author of Hebrews says, hold fast to Jesus, the sympathetic high priest. He's not far away from you. He's not unconcerned. He hasn't left you. He knows you. As we've already adored God for the God who knows us, He knows you in your weakness. He remembers your frame. He knows that you are dust. He is able to sympathize with your weakness. He endured and resisted temptation in order to save you. That is the extent of Christ's sympathy. He is great in sympathy. The second aspect of Jesus' greatness is the greatness of his calling, his priestly calling. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. Well, that's the first place we see it. So let's listen to God's word from Hebrews 4, 5, verse 4 through 6. Chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. And no one takes this honor, this honor of priesthood for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the author begins here in verse 4 with a general statement about all high priests. No high priest takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. So to become a high priest requires being called by God. Interestingly, that would have been maybe news to some of the people who claim to be high priests during the days of the New Testament. But that's beside the point. 
So he says that Aaron himself was called to this office. Now, you search the scriptures and you try to find sort of some direct speech where God says to Aaron, Aaron, I call you to be high priest. You don't find it. But we trust the author of Hebrews is right here. We don't have that about Aaron, but we do have it about Christ. The author says that Psalm 2, verse 7, and Psalm 110, verse 4, are God calling Jesus to the office of high priesthood. Bobby Jameson says that these words to Christ are God's way of officially installing Jesus in his office as Messiah upon his ascension to heaven. So after completing his suffering and rising from the dead, Christ ascended into heaven and was established as priest and king over God's house, over God's people forever. So when God says to the Christ, descended and risen in heaven, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's a, it's a word of installation. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. It's, it's installing Jesus into this great priesthood, this great mediatorial office to which Christ has been appointed. Now, there's a lot to be said about Melchizedek that we're not going to say today because a couple of weeks, or maybe several weeks later, we're going to cover Melchizedek in depth in chapter 7. So I'm going to leave a lot on the table. But for us today, we need to see that the, the Melchizedek order of priesthood is a greater order. And the, the author of Hebrews argues this explicitly. Melchizedek is a figure that's only mentioned a couple times in the Old Testament. So in Genesis 14, he's mentioned. In Psalm 110, he's mentioned. His name means king of righteousness. And when he appears to Abraham in Genesis 14, he is called the priest of the Most High God. So we have a king of righteousness who is the priest of the Most High God. According to the author of Hebrews, Melchizedek's priesthood is greater than Aaron's because for one thing, it's an eternal priesthood. Melchizedek has no beginning or end. And it's it's to this eternal priesthood, greater than Aaron's priesthood, to which Jesus has been appointed. Then the author goes on in our passage to describe this great priesthood like this in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So here is the the essence of the greatness of Jesus' high priestly calling. Jesus faithfully suffered death in order to become the source of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Jesus' high priestly calling is so great because he suffered death sinlessly and became the source of eternal salvation. You can't say that about Aaron's priesthood, but you can say it about Jesus' priesthood. He becomes the source of eternal salvation because he suffered death without sin in perfect faith in his Father. Again, this is not like Aaron's priesthood because it's eternal salvation. You know, we, we read in our study of Leviticus that, that the, the tabernacle, as soon as it's put into, into service, is desecrated by the sins of Aaron's sons. and has to be immediately cleaned and purified by the Day of Atonement. Jesus' Jesus's salvation can't be, can't be soiled by the sin of anyone. 
Jesus' salvation overcomes sin. It is the eternal salvation that only the sinless Son of God could accomplish. I promise all these S's are not intentional Baptist alliteration. They're just all in the, in the Bible here, and they're hard to say. We get another picture of Jesus' sinless sympathy for us when we read that he offered up prayers and supplications with, uh, prayers with loud cries and supplications. We see here that Jesus truly suffered, but he suffered prayerfully and reverently. He suffered with perfect faith. He proved himself to have none of the moral weakness that we have, even as he suffered in his human body. He had a body that could cry tears, and he cried them in his pain. We read that he learned obedience as a faithful son, submitting to the same course of suffering that his human brothers did, even greater than theirs. And it is because of this faithful suffering that Jesus was given the calling of high priest. He was called by God to be the great high priest. Now, if we struggle to understand that Christ was made perfect through suffering, we might be helped just to back things up and to remember that Christ is the Son of God who became man. That's kind of the the foundational mystery that all the other mysteries build upon. Christ is the God-man. He became man. We might say that the Son of God became man in order to learn obedience by the things that he suffered. He, He became man in order to suffer. When the author of Hebrews says he was perfected, he means that Jesus completed the course of obedience that God had assigned to him. And because Jesus embraced the suffering, because he suffered sinlessly, he was qualified to be priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Because he was perfected through suffering, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now, we we might be puzzled by that last phrase. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That phrase doesn't mean that we earn salvation by obeying Jesus. But we need to see that obedience and faith are intricately linked in Hebrews. So remember last week's message. The Israelites' disobedience was a result of their unbelief. And if we were to fast forward to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8, we would read that by faith, Abraham obeyed. So we take hold of Christ's great saving work through faith, by trusting in him. And this saving faith is obedient faith. It is a faith exactly like Christ's faith, faith in God that leads to costly obedience. So that's the doctrine of this passage. Jesus is the great high priest. He's great because of his sympathy. He is sinless, but he sympathizes with our sinful state such that he died to save us. And he is great because of his great calling. Jesus is the great high priest who achieved something that no priest in Aaron's line could achieve. The best that the Aaronic priests could do is they could introduce people to this tent which required them to stay at some distance from God's throne room. But Jesus, the great high priest, invites us into God's very throne room, into the holy of holies where Christ is seated on the throne of grace. Christ is the great high priest. Because of his faithful suffering, he is the source of eternal salvation. 
So that's the doctrine that God would teach us. When we're tempted to doubt God's goodness or to put our trust in something other to him than him or to, to test God, we're to look to Christ, our great high priest. But the Lord doesn't teach us to do that and then sort of leave us on our own to figure it out. In verse 16, he tells us that we can apply this passage. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let us boldly come near, as the King James put it. Because we have in Jesus a great high priest who sympathizes with us and who has won victory over sin and death, we should come with confidence to Christ's throne of grace. We should come to Jesus boldly to seek help. And we do so knowing that in our time of need, at the proper time, God will help us. Jesus will help us. So for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to try and work this application into our lives and look at it from two different perspectives. We should draw near to Jesus when we've sinned, and we should draw near to Jesus when we're in the middle of temptation. So the overall point here is draw near to Jesus. Draw near to Jesus when you've sinned, and when you're in the middle of temptation. First, we draw near to Jesus when we've sinned. Now, we may think that a sinless person is the last person we'd want to turn to when we sin, right? I think we all have a kind of gravitational pull to the the kind of sympathy that those priests of Aaron's line might give us. That kind of priest can't be too hard on us because they are sinners too, right? If we feel that way, we need to ask, what kind of help do we want when we've sinned? We may want only to be told, well, your sin isn't that big of a deal. Or we may want to have our ego boosted a little. Yeah, you sin, but you're not that bad of a person. One of the things that we often pray for in our pastoral prayer is that our church will have a culture of transparency where we're willing to share the embarrassing truth about our sin. But even as we pray for that, we should admit that that kind of culture can go wrong in some ways. So we could talk about sin a lot in our church, but as a way to make light on it. We could joke about sin. If we're doing that, we're just cultivating a culture of unrighteousness. Or we could confess sins because we are kind of hoping for a a kind word from our pastor or from a brother that, that kind of pacifies our guilty conscience. If we do that, we're kind of creating a culture of penance where we do things among ourselves to take care of our sin. We're trying to turn others into priests for us. Or we may not be looking for a kind word. We may be looking for a a pastor to maybe beat us up a little bit, make us feel bad about our sin. That way we can sort of feel like we paid for it in some way. All those ways are bad ways of dealing with sin because they have nothing of Christ in them. So we should ask, what kind of help are you looking for when you sin? When we sin, we need to remember the sympathy of our sinless, great high priest. His sympathy is the powerful, effective sympathy of the one who saves. Because of his sinless, righteous love, he poured out his own life to save sinners. So when we sin, we should come boldly to Christ. We should come boldly to Jesus because he's the only one who can truly help us in our sin. When we come to him, we will receive mercy. We will find grace. 
the mercy and grace of Jesus proclaims to us, he proclaims to sinners, he has tasted death to pay for our sin. Those are words from Hebrews chapter 2. He tasted death for us by God's grace. So that lie we told, that lustful thought we had, that angry outburst we had, Jesus died to pay the price of those specific sins. So when we come to Jesus with our sin, he doesn't tell us, your sin's no big deal. Don't worry about it. And he doesn't tell us to to go away and pray for two hours and then come back and then your sins are paid for. He doesn't tell us to to whip ourselves with, with cords. He tells us, your sins deserved God's wrath, but I paid the price with my own life. I took God's wrath for you. Because of his sacrifice for sins, instead of receiving judgment at God's throne, we receive mercy. The work of Jesus turns the throne of judgment into a throne of grace for us. That's the help we need when we've sinned. And remember, Jesus is the great high priest who was heard by God because of his reverence. So Jesus not only died, but he rose again from the dead. That idea of Jesus being heard by God in in Hebrews here shows us that Jesus' salvation doesn't come before his death, but after his death. He's saved from the state of death. He wasn't saved from dying. But he was victorious over sin and death. He is alive. His life in heaven is the evidence that our sins really were taken care of on the cross. He really did conquer sin and death for us. And because he did, we've been already been told in chapter 1, he was given a name more excellent than angels. He was declared to be the Son of God because of what he did. Very practically, we boldly come to Christ first by trusting in his work for us. If you've never come to Christ, today is the day. Come to him by trusting that he paid for your sins on the cross. That he took your sin upon himself. That he tasted death for you. We also come to him simply by praying. Pray. When you sin, pray and confess your sin to God. You don't have to wait till the the point of the service where we we pray the prayer of confession during the Lord's Supper. You can pray right now. Or you can pray this morning when you sin, right? Now is the best time to pray and confess your sin to God. Ask the Lord to forgive you when you pray because of what Jesus has done. I think it's helpful in this vein to pray out loud. It's good to hear yourself. Name your sins and name the promises of God. I'd encourage you when you pray and confess your sin to pray the words of Scripture back to God. So when you come into Christ's throne room, don't forget to bring your Bible. So you could pray Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. You could say, Father, please forgive me of the sin because Christ tasted death for me by your grace. In your prayer, confess that the Lord is merciful and gracious and ask for his mercy. You might hold on to your bulletin this week and, and keep that assurance of pardon handy. So today we're going to have Hebrews 10, 19 through 22 as our assurance of pardon. And after you pray and confess your sin to God, read that prayer. or Read that, read that assurance of pardon to remind yourself that your sins are forgiven in Christ. 
The reason we can pray boldly is because of the greatness of our high priest. I think this bold prayer indicates that it probably should be frequent prayer. Come all the time to Christ. Come as often as you sin. Come to Christ because he is full of sympathy. Come to Christ because he's perfectly righteous. Come to him because he's the source of eternal salvation. And there's no power on earth or hell that can diminish that salvation. Christ is gracious and merciful so much that he, he left his throne in heaven to die for us. And now he sits on the throne of grace ready to receive us. So just like a thirsty man runs to the source of water, sinners come boldly to the place where we find help for our souls. We go to Christ's throne of grace. And the ground for our coming is the gospel itself. So part of coming boldly is to preach the gospel to yourself. Know the gospel and apply it to yourself every day. The help that we find when we sin is Christ's forgiveness and righteousness. I say righteousness because Christ doesn't downplay our sin or approve of it. Coming to Christ forces us to acknowledge the ugliness of our sin. There's no coming to Christ without admitting you sinned and that your sin deserves hell. The forgiveness of our sin required the death of the perfect Son of God. So come boldly to Christ and know that as you come boldly, you're going to be forgiven and Christ will redirect your your gaze away from your sin and onto his mercy and righteousness. In that way, coming boldly to Christ's gracious throne calls us to renewed obedience. So many of the historic prayers of confession that you find end with that resolve to renewed obedience. The throne of grace points us to holiness because we belong to our holy Lord. That's the exact trajectory of the Leviticus passages we read when we studied that. Cleansing leads to cleansing. So again, is this the kind of help you want for your sin? The Lord is showing us the kind of help we need. He doesn't leave any doubt about it. This is a message for sinners, and sinners need Christ, the high priest. We confess sin to each other in the church because sometimes we need help to come boldly before the throne of grace. We need other brothers and sisters to encourage us to fight our sin with the gospel. And we confess our sin in order to magnify the grace of Christ. As John Piper has famously pointed out, this is not the magnification of a microscope, but of a telescope. We want a culture of transparency in our church that makes the righteousness and mercy of Christ look as great and lovely as they really are. We want the great high priest Jesus to appear great among us. We want to help each other not to neglect the great salvation that we have in Christ. We want to be a place where Christ, the great high priest, is the center of our fellowship. When we sin, come boldly to Christ. We need to draw near to Christ when we sin. And we should also come near to Christ when we're in the middle of temptation. We should draw near to Christ when we're in the middle of temptation. Jesus is proclaimed to us here as the one who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. He's sympathetic to the weakness of sinners. 
We've seen already that he, he suffered with loud cries and tears, and yet those loud cries and tears were his prayers to God, and he offered them up with reverence. Not only that, but Christ knows what it feels like to pray for something, to pray for deliverance, and to, to have that prayer answered not in a timely fashion as it accords to us, right? He was saved from death after his death, right? For most of us, that would be like the ultimate bummer, right? But for Jesus, it was his victory. He endured death and then was exalted over death. He knows what that's like. The perfect perfect obedience of Christ was hard won. It wasn't just theoretical obedience. It wasn't theoretical perfection. It was obedience forged in the fire of death. So when when we're tempted to doubt God or to believe in the deceitful promises of sin, we should come boldly to Christ for help. We should look to him as the great example of one who resisted temptation and also the one who gives strength and grace when we are tempted. One of the places where temptation comes closest to us, I think, is in our suffering. So when we suffer with illness or a difficult relationship, we're, we're tempted to doubt God. In our suffering, we often get angry with God. We don't believe we deserve to suffer the way that we're suffering. Or we despair and feel helpless because the circumstances we're facing seem to have no end in sight. We put our hope for deliverance often in these cases in in some earthly remedy, whether it's alcohol and drugs or some new medical supplement or maybe a a new parenting technique. We look to these things for help instead of God. We're tempted in all these ways in our suffering. But Christ promises help for the tempted. I think one of the things he does for us is, first of all, show us that suffering is normal for Christians in a fallen world. The perfect son of God suffered. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, I don't say this is normal because I want you to all turn into pessimists and, and Eeyore. And I want you to give up on seeking change. That's not what I'm after here. But the normalcy of suffering clarifies our goal in this life. In this evil world, our priority is faith in Christ over relief from pain. Now, relief from pain is good. But the pain is always going to be with us in some form or fashion. Understanding the normalcy of suffering helps us then not to waste our suffering. Let your suffering be an opportunity to fellowship with your Savior who suffered. Your suffering is an opportunity to be built up in your faith. Christ helps us also by showing us how to suffer. He suffered with loud cries and tears. He called out in anguish to the Father and he trusted him and obeyed him. So how do we suffer well? We lament and obey. Mark Vergrat, the pastor in Indianapolis, says that lament is prayer in pain that leads to trust. Brothers and sisters, do you know how to lament, to pray in your pain, to confess what you're going through to God with loud cries and tears? Express your trust in him through the pain. Pour out your heart to God. Tell him the truth about how you're suffering and lay hold of his promises and his grace. Trust that the Lord 
will be your help, that you will find mercy and grace at his throne. And then by his grace, keep walking with him. You don't need to know the the step you're to take three years from now. Simply take the next step of obedience and love that the Lord puts before you. Lament and obey. We don't know where our path is always leading us. Sometimes we have a, a pretty good example or a pretty good idea. Sometimes we know that, I, that that path is leading through more suffering. That, that before we get out of this, there's going to be more hard stuff to go through. But we can know all the way that the Lord is with us. And this again is what Christ did. He cried out to God and he laid out down his life. He asks for the hour to pass away and for him not to have to, to drink that cup. But then he prays, Lord, your will be done. And he gets up and says, my betrayer is here. The hour has come. Lament and obey is how we suffer well. When suffering tempts you to turn away from God, come boldly to the throne of grace and come with tears. Come asking for help to see Jesus. Jesus knows that we are weak. He knows the ways we sin in our suffering. He knows what it means to suffer. He's the great high priest who's gone before us through suffering and into exaltation. He set the pattern for us. So when we pray to Christ, we are communing with somebody who has been through death and conquered it and is on the other side, exalted over death. That's who we're tied to. So suffering believers can look to Christ and we can know that he is bringing many sons to glory. He is taking us with him. We will, be where he want, where, we will one day be where he currently is. And even now we are with him, seated, on, seated with him in the heavenly places. After our suffering has been completed, God will hear us because we belong to Jesus. We will be delivered from death and we will be with him. When we come to Jesus, we will receive grace to look beyond this life to heavenly life with God. That's the grace we so desperately need, isn't it? An eternal vision that sees beyond the suffering of this life. So suffering is a big place temptations come, but we all know that temptations come in many ways and in many forms. We can face temptation at every moment of the day. When we're tempted, we should come boldly to Christ. Remembering once again, he was tempted in every respect. He sympathizes with our weakness. He can teach us how to resist temptation. So being tempted is not a reason to hide from Christ. Being tempted is a reason to go to Christ and ask him for help in your time of need and trust that you will find it. When we come to Christ, we do find grace. Now that grace does not always, maybe not even usually, remove the temptation. But Christ gives us strength to fight temptation and wisdom to know when to flee temptation. So pray for eyes to see Christ in his beauty and goodness. Again, Christ himself fought temptation with God's word. So we can come boldly to Christ in the midst of temptation by coming to God's word. Ask the Lord to teach you through his word and to grant you faith to believe it. Perhaps we fall into temptation as much as we do because we are not living on God's word. We haven't learned God's word enough and we're not applying it. 
Seek Christ in his word. In this light, one of the keys to fighting temptation is to start the fight before temptation comes. So coming to worship like this is a way to fight temptation. God fortifies you with his word and the gospel through all that we do here together. Right? We, we've heard God's word. We've sang the truths of God's word. We've, we've confessed the truth of the gospel today. We've prayed together to adore Christ. In a, in a minute, we'll pray in confession. We'll hear the promise of assurance of forgiveness from God's word. We call all of these things God's means of grace. So those who struggle with temptation, which is all of us, should come to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we find grace. We find all these means of grace that God means to build us up so that we can fight temptation. The fellowship of God's people is another place we find Christ. Throughout Hebrews, the Lord has called us to encourage and exhort each other. In last week's passage, he's told us to do that daily. It should be a frequent occurrence that we're having deep gospel conversations about our sin and the greatness of Christ. The fellowship of the church then is clearly to be more than socializing. How can we work to build that deep fellowship where we're encouraging each other every day not to neglect our great salvation and our great high priest? Our fellowship is based on the reality that we have all found life in Christ. So draw near to Christ by drawing near his people. Encourage one another and be encouraged with the gospel. Don't face your suffering and your temptation alone, but face it with God's people, with Christ's people. When we're tempted, we should turn to those relationships forged by the gospel and trust that they will strengthen us. Call on each other for prayer and for reminders of Christ, the great high priest. Hebrews calls Christ the source of salvation. Would you be saved? Come to the source. Do you want to be delivered from temptation? Come to Christ, the great high priest, the one who faced every temptation and yet didn't fall into it. He's sinless yet sympathetic. He died to deliver you from the power and the penalty of sin. He offered himself to God and his offering was received because of his perfect faith. So when you sin and when you suffer and when you're tempted, come boldly to Christ, the great high priest. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your throne of grace. We must confess our weakness. We are stained by sin. We pray for your help and we thank you that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. Thank you, Jesus, that you are perfect, that you endured the cross for our sake, that you live and reign now, that you ever live to make intercession for us. We pray for your help. Amen.